This is the Today's RDH Dental Hygiene Podcast. The podcast for curious and passionate dental hygienists. Hello, Kara Vavrosky here from Today's RDH, and I am here with the wonderful Emily Bogie, who is a dental administrative chair and director of both the dental hygiene and dental assisting programs at Hawkeye Community College in Waterloo, Iowa. Today, we are going to continue our preventive discussion series sponsored by Dent Supply Serona. Thank you, Dent Supply. Um, talking about the general importance of infection control in the dental office while working clinically during this global pandemic. You bet. So hello, my friend. How are things out west? Good overall. Um, fires are subsiding. Yay! So that was a whole, I could do a whole probably video on that, but we won't get into that in air quality um, and just evacuees at my house. Um, oh my. So yeah, how are you? You know, I'm good. I can't complain. It's been a, quite a year for infection control. Been doing a lot of online presentations. But it's starting to seem that clinicians or patients and, and patients are both starting to take a really active role in making sure that their infection control is the standard that it should be. And so the topic of disease prevention and risk management in the pandemic environment is, is going strong still. And if there's one silver lining, it's that we're seeing a heightened awareness of health literacy and of safe practices like hand washing and all kinds of other things. So if there's anything that's a silver lining, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, there, there must be something good that comes out of this mess. I, I think that part of the difficulties that we're seeing um, stem from providers that don't fully understand the virus and the general lack of communication between providers and their team. And so, they don't understand the virus because science doesn't understand the virus. It's not anything that they're not doing on their part. And so that general confusion, I think that maybe this month we should just take some time and have a good overview of what the CDC is saying for pandemic specific recommendations. Yeah, that, I think that sounds like a wonderful plan for today. Um, oh, where do you start? There are, there are so many practicing clinicians that are just feeling overwhelmed with the processes and protocols in their office. And I think in many cases, it's just a lack of these processes and policies that are the problem. Right. And because the key to any, I think, group dynamic or group culture in a dental practice is consistency. And if you don't have consistency and everyone isn't on the same page, the whole concept of infection prevention and risk management kind of goes out the window. And so that includes policies on PPE and aerosol management and general maintenance of public health in that community where that dental office is located. And so it's so critical when everyone is playing from a different playbook, right? And the team just can't function as a cohesive unit because nobody knows the plays, right? Look at you with your sports analogies. <laughs> no, it's kind of... I feel a little bit like a fraud, but I've been going to a lot of football games because the boys, you know, are at that age. And so I think my football mom is starting to come out with this infection control and team play. And what I'm trying to say is that we got to approach each day of patient care with systems in place. And unless and everybody is following the protocol, you might just as well not have a protocol at all because you get this huge gap in the system where, you know, 
no one knows what they're supposed to be doing, right? And so the CDC recommends there, there should be an infection control coordinator in every office because unless there's an infection control coordinator, there's no one that's like the buck stops here, right? Like this is what we're doing. That person can then be accountable for the overall maintenance of the program and keeps everybody on the same page. And so they're maintaining disease prevention because you have um, some type of standards. And notice I didn't say bacteria control anymore because that used to be the way people looked at it. So we're now approaching risk management on a more holistic standard. And finally, you know, it's not just bacteria that are the bad guys. We're looking at bacteria, you know, that's always been the thorn in our side of dentistry because, you know, that's what causes caries and that's what contributes to uh, periodontal disease and such. But there are so many other things we need to pay attention to, the fungi and the protozoa and, you know, viruses, all those other microorganisms. Exactly. Um, so why don't we start talking about what we can do to minimize the spread of spe the specific problem right now, COVID-19. Um, what are some measures we can do to decrease the incidence of the virus being present in the dental practice? So one of the most effective things that we can do as providers is minimize the number of people who are present in the treatment environment and in the building itself. Because when those aerosols are produced, when they come out of the mouth, they're flying into the open air. And if we're not recovering them right away, there's going to be more in the air, right? So we can't do a whole lot to control the proximity between ourselves as a provider and the patient. Because, right, you have to be able to get to the mouth to work on it. But what we can control is the proximity of people who aren't providing direct patient care. So we can control the distance that patients sit between each other in the reception area. We can control how many people are in the building working at the same time. Um, the proximity where the office professionals, where the administrative team, how far apart are they working? And how many people are actually allowed in the building at the same time to work? Yeah, many offices have established a process of pre-screening or and then screening upon entry and then post-op screening to assist in the process. Mm -hmm. um, so if patients are symptomatic, meaning they have symptoms like active symptoms or have been directly exposed to an individual um, who has tested COVID-19 positive, they're rescheduled. Right. And so that's what we're doing at the college. We have a very simple step that was added to in June to our protocols. And it was very kind of tough to organize initially, but now it's become second nature. So every patient, we pre-screen them on the phone, and then we pre-screen them when they get to the door. And having that system is just now common practice for us. Um, that That's so true, the second nature. Like, it does take a minute, but like with anything, even when you learned how to hand scale in, in your program, in your hygiene program, it's like, that wasn't easy at first, and then it becomes second nature. Um, so when making these changes, it seems like it's such a big deal to accomplish. Having the team on board um, is, you know, maybe the hard part, but then maintaining the systems once they are in place are, are easy. Right, and that's what I'm saying. It's it's deciding the processes to use and then getting them written down and having someone who's accountable to keep the team on board. That's the hard part. 
then once you get them in place, they're pretty easy to manage. I mean, if there's a change of recommendations from the CDC or there's a change in mandates from OSHA, then you just change what's written down. Yeah. So screening patients, let's talk symptoms. I've read on social media that many patients are confused about the difference between the symptoms of COVID-19 and flu. So mm. how are offices differentiate, differentiating between the two? So I can tell you what our school dental clinic is doing. Um, and these are based by the based on the guidelines that CDC has provided, um, that they provided back in August that outline the similarities versus the differences when you look at COVID-19 as a virus and then the flu virus, influenza. Um, they're both, both very contagious respiratory illnesses, but they're both caused by different viruses. And so COVID-19 is caused by a novel, meaning you know, a new coronavirus category called SARS-CoV-2. Influenza or the flu is caused by an infection with the influenza virus. So some of the symptoms of flu and COVID-19 are similar, so it can be kind of hard to judge which one you're battling as a patient. And so that's why testing is what is needed to confirm your diagnosis. And both conditions can include symptoms like fever and cough and shortness of breath, um, feeling tired, having a sore throat, a runny nose, body aches, headaches, uh, GI issues like a stomach ache or diarrhea. Um, but it seems like the one key symptom with COVID-19 includes this alteration of taste or smell. And that's the only way that they're, they're, they seem to be differentiating at this point. So we need to have, um, you know, it's, it's critical that we understand what the patient is dealing with. And so having that test completed is the only thing that we can do to say, yes, this is definitely COVID-19 or yes, this is definitely the flu or, or whatever it is. Um, so we need to have individuals who are having symptoms isolate themselves because when you isolate yourself, you're obviously not exposing others to the condition because they, you have to have a susceptible host for the condition to grow. And so we need to be extra careful about who we let in our practice because while there has not been any current outbreaks linked directly to dental practices as of yet that I've read as of, you know, I guess the last time I read some literature was Thursday um, and there wasn't currently any cases that were linked directly back to a dental practice. We have a ton of aerosols flying around. This isn't a secret. And so it makes us an extra risky place for a host to visit or a patient to visit that might even be more immunocompromised. So we, we have to make sure that since our aerosols are there, that they are contained while the patient is there. Yeah, that is the elephant in the room. AGP, aerosol generating procedures. So from what I see, um, social media is lit up like Christmas time with discussions on whether it is ethical to be using aerosol generating mm -hmm. hand pieces right now. Um, ultrasonics, um, your slow speeds, even an air water syringe, um, even lasers. Um, so I, I want to take this opportunity to remind our listeners that the CDC is still recommending that providers eliminate AGP 
whenever possible. And in areas that are considered COVID-19 hotspots, they're recommending non-elective care only still. Um, when patients are being seen, it is recommended that all efforts be made to decrease aerosol production. And when aerosol procedures are being completed, the CDC is recommending the use of an N95 respirator, um, full face shield, and all other full PPE to decrease the provider list. And OSHA takes it further with a mandate of if you are creating aerosols, using doing treatment that creates aerosols, that you do need to have that fit tested um, N95 respirator, not KN95, not a counterfeit, that actual N95 respirator that's been fit tested. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's lots of improvements and techniques and research for aerosol management. And I think one of the keys is to use that HVE on every single procedure where that AGP is going to take place. If your aerosol generating procedure is occurring, we need to have an HVE also close to the mouth or inside the mouth. And that's not anything new. We've talked about that since 2003 when those infection control and dental settings documentation series came out. And so to clarify some of the AGP confusion, this includes high speed, slow speed, both, you know, both types of hand pieces, lasers, ultrasonics, air polishers, and a few other things that we use in the dental office. Now the CDC has also come out and said, we cannot specifically state everything that produces AGP procedures because the list will be too long and then we'll forget one and then somebody will be like, oh, that wasn't on the list, right? So they don't, what um, policy people like me being a policy nerd, um, they don't laundry list. That's what we call laundry listing um, different items when we can all put them into all one category and say no AGP. So if there, we look back to what an aerosol is from our video a couple months ago, anything less than what five microns, um, micrometers, large, that fog type appearance rather than a raindrop, that's when we say, okay, you need to have that HVE tip. And the HVE tip, remind you, eight millimeter single opening or larger. And so moisture control, again, is different than aerosol management. And so, I could talk about specific particle size for days and, and all that stuff, but the bottom line is that nobody's measuring the size of the particulate of the aerosols in the room. And so CDC and NIOSH both tell us that the only effective way to measure is to actually gather the particles and take measurements. And since nobody is doing that with, you know, the aerosol collectors on the patient's chest, then we need to say, okay, we have to have that HVE present we need to take these small particles as they're suspended in the air, as close to the mouth or even in the mouth with the HVE if possible, before they can be projected or propelled into the common areas of the practice. Right. Um, and for those that have listened to our videos before, um, you already know this. Um, we've spoken about it before, probably at nauseum at this point, but it's, you know, we like to do that. Um, there is a difference between, like you said, aerosol management and moisture control. Um, some companies are advertising uh, moisture control armamentarium as aerosol management. And I really think this is further compounding the general confusion. Plus, it makes me want to pull my hair out. Um, at, and the size in this case does matter. Um, why? 
Well, diseases, specifically COVID-19, spreads when viral par particles are aerosol aerosolized by cough, sneeze, or dental hand pieces. We know this. And let's also remember that we can't see these aerosols. So it's like, oh, I feel that this, um, this such and such uh, actual moisture control um, insert for the uh, HVE, oh, it does so much. So it is working. And it's like, but you can't tell because aerosols are microscopic. Now, splatter might be helping with that. You can see splatter, but you can't see aerosols. So um, that that's why respiratory illness is one of the top reasons why, you know, we, we all miss work as healthcare providers. It's stuff, you can't see it. Um, so in EGP instances, particles can potentially travel across greater distances, um, then incite secondary infections elsewhere in the environment. Um, these aerosolized droplet nuclei can remain in the area, suspended in the air, even after the person who admitted them has potentially left and infecting. So now they're gone, but these aerosols are still in the air. So it can infect both the healthcare workers, us, um, anyone else who comes by the room or even walks by, and anyone else, the, the next person into the operatory. Um, and it contaminates surfaces on top of it, surfaces you might not even think about. Yeah, and that's, that's why you got to have that single opening HVE because the science behind it, right? The science behind it says the single opening does a better job. And I always think like when I use my vacuum cleaner, if I use that real skinny opening, yeah, it makes it more specific. So it can get along the cracks of my furniture better. But when I have that bigger opening, I mean, I can't see how much it's sucking out of the air, but the science says it's sucking out more. And so until the science changes, that's what I have to go by. And so you can have a great amount of suction power to get these microparticles out of the air before they can fly away, before they can even land on the surfaces or be suspended in the air. So for somebody else's lungs to pick them up because these microbes need a host. Yes, they can live on the surface for, you know, I, I read some literature, I can't remember who was Van, Van something or other, I can't remember from my infection control pro, um, presentation, but you know, 72 hours on a certain surface, 36 hours on a certain surface, um, a certain amount of hours on a copper surface, you know, different surfaces they can live, but to truly thrive and propagate and be spread, they gotta have a host. If they don't have a host, they're not gonna be able to grow. Yeah, I have to go back to your vacuum analogy. Um, I that's I think that is a perfect analogy using that smaller, like when you use the hose part, as opposed to using then a bigger attachment. I totally random here. I had just taken the couch cushions off the couch of our lower our downstairs couches and say I was using the bigger one and I'm like, this isn't working. And so I was like, this is gonna take way longer, but went right to that smaller little one. And mm -hmm. what do you know? And so it's really funny how something is weird as like thinking of a vacuum, vacuum attachments. It really does make sense when it comes to dentistry. And now on that fact, I still need to do the upstairs couches. And, I just <laughs> tilted my, and so I'm like, well, and so I've been putting it off because I'm like, this is going to take forever because I know I need to use the smaller attachment. Mm -hmm. So anyways, back to dentistry, because um, everybody cares about me needing to vacuum <laughs> underneath my couch cushions. Um, thank you, dogs. 
Um, so in addition to limiting AGP um, procedures, those aerosol generating procedures, um, screening patients for a specific pandemic condition and controlling the aerosols when we must utilize, uh, utilize AGP, um, what procedures have you established for clothing PPE? Oh, okay. So first of all, I'll tell you, it was a heck of a deal to get scrubs this year and it was a heck of a deal to get lab jackets, but I got to oh. say our local uniform shop knocked it out of the park. They were so amazing to me and to my students and I can't say thank you enough. And that's the thing about ordering local and not to get on my soapbox about that but they were amazing to my students and got everything to us. Um, some of the stuff was delayed, but man, she worked her tail off. And at the school, we've always laundered our, our scrubs on site for like the last five years um, with a medical grade antibacterial washing solution. And the folks who launder our garments know that they are biohazard contaminated and so they handle them properly. Um, we did change to a higher neck scrub jacket um, that's knee length. In addition to that, it is fluid resistant to provide additional protection to both of our licensed clinicians and our students, both groups of people who work. So our clinical team that's licensed and our students that is learning from that clinical team. Um, the sleeves on the coats have the longer um, knit, tighter sleeve ends so the nitrile gloves can come up over the sleeves so they can have full skin protection. We also require a full disinfectable face shield that when it gets scratched, we have some replacement shields, but they spray wipe spray those between patients and they change their jacket between patients. Um, we require the students to spray wipe spray their loops. Um, they wear a respirator and a 95 respirator, respirator because we have kind of an open clinic, but we do have partition walls between the chairs, so it's not completely open but still we require everyone to wear their respirator. And then they wear a level three over mask because we have had some problems getting um, respirators. So they keep them, um, they, they wear this over mask for additional protection. So in case anyone doesn't know what, um, describe what you mean by over mask. Yeah, it's a concept that I really didn't quite understand before this COVID-19 environment. I had never heard of anyone doing that. But since the supply of N95s is pretty limited, um, the students utilize them for several days. And so what they do is they reduce the number of, or they, they reduce the chance of contaminating their N95 respirator by wearing a level three mask over the respirator. So it's almost like the, the N95 respirator becomes part of their face. They don't touch it, they don't, and then they treat that with wearing the level three over it. And so, they store their masks safely in some paper bags between clinic sessions. And then, you know, the CDC has promoted that this is one way that, yeah, those are disposable products, but it's one way that we can prolong the use. And so we are allowing uh, polishing in the clinic now. We are not yet allowing ultrasonic use. So this is one way that we can try to prolong the use of those um, N95 respirators. Now, sometimes the N95 respirator will break, you know, maybe one of the head uh, straps will break on it. Um, maybe a student will get like a bloody nose or sneeze in it or whatever, then we just get them a new one. But anytime we can prolong the duration that those last, then we're going to be better off because there's such a shortage. Yeah, I feel, I feel that it's weird talking about 
reusing something mm-hmm. that is supposed to be one-time use because that is like that's that's a no-no can't be done but cardinal it's like, sin i know and it's yeah. so hard to get over but we just we have no choice but mm-hmm. yeah so we're just going to get over that and now we're moving forward so that is thank you for explaining um i feel like we need to touch on the concept of using professional judgment because you know the cdc says oh it's up to your professional professional judgment or or certain state boards will say that or the ada will say that and so there is such a divide in the risk levels right now across the globe and this professional judgment concept so with our listeners being from not only many states but actually many countries yay thank you hi um it's important for us to mention that the risk in one area might be far less than the risk in another and i know that's common sense but i can't sleep at night if i don't just say these things out loud so for this reason we're seeing dental boards in various states making state specific recommendations we and we should all you should know or know to go to your state board website to see these things that is something you do need to know if you're practicing um yeah absolutely absolutely it's such a great time to step back and and say we need to use our own personal evidence-based decision-making skills like i have to say i'm from iowa i'm from dubuque county where there's you know kind of a mid-level risk right now um i work in blackhawk county there's a greater risk in blackhawk county so as i'm guiding the students in a different county i have to consider that public health dynamic and i know no one listening sorry educators who teach community oral health nobody wants to go back to that class it's a class that ruined my 4.0 in hygiene school by golly anyway no one wants to go back to that class and talk about you know regional evidence-based decision making but that's what it amounts to you have to know the risk of the condition in the area of the patients that you're treating And that becomes even more difficult when you're in a situation at a larger institution where the patients sometimes drive two or three hours. There you go. And so you have to use that evidence-based decision-making. The only way to get the evidence is to pre-screen the patient. And so a lot of these concepts are all woven together. And so it's it's the bottom line is that you got to use your your ethical decision-making capability in the individual community you're in. I totally agree. I live five minutes across the Oregon-Washington border, and I will always consider myself an Oregonian, but I do happen to live in Vancouver, Washington. And um, it's very interesting how Washington, even though there's just a bridge and a river separating us, it's a totally different world. And now way up north in Seattle, didn't do so well in the beginning. Um, but then now it's like you just whoop 20 minutes down the way to Portland, Oregon, different situation than Vancouver, Washington. I mean, it's crazy just crossing the Columbia River. So right. yes. We can't require, we can't ask these policymakers to make these decisions for us. Because if they say this is mandated in Iowa, there's 99 counties in Iowa. Uh-huh. Some of those counties have like 250 people living in them. Some have 250,000 people living in them. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy. And we cannot rely. That's something that we, as professionals, we shouldn't even ask. I mean, yes, you need to have some standards. I'm not downplaying that, but you need to use your ethical decision-making judgment. 
And the, the last thing I'm going to say about that is over here, what we're, we're considered the Willamette Valley in the valley where it's more populated, things hit here, got crazy, um, super fast. And then people on the eastern side of like Oregon and Washington, that's very, very rural. I went to school in eastern Oregon. I went to college. My dental program um, was out there. And um, it's very interesting because everyone out there, it, and I don't want to say everyone, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but people were like, well, we're, we're so, you know, already spread apart. This isn't going to hit us and da, 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 and all these things. Well, guess what? Guess who's having huge outbreaks right now? It's our rural communities out East. And while we're actually kind of getting our act together, however, of course, now there is beginning to be an uptick, which we're seeing in a lot of places, but they're still over uh, not being able to walk into restaurants and go into, you know, they're still at that level or that phase one, whereas we're in, you know, phase two here reopening and some of them had to even be bumped down like, nope, you got to stay at home now because, you know, every, so it's just, it's so interesting because it took longer over there. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent. So I think on oh, that, I'm, I'm just going to zip my lips. And um, <laughs> I think I'm just going to stop right there. I'm just going to shut myself down. Um, so we should probably wrap this up. Um, yeah. And again, this was a, this was a general conversation, but I hope that people kind of get the tidbits that, oh yeah, just kind of click and remind you, um, you know, of some of those things. So I do, thank you, Emily. Um, and I, again, have to thank our wonderful sponsors, um, Dent Splice Rona for supporting this video and um, for, you know, letting us, allowing us to do this video series. Um, and then thank you for everyone who's watching each month. Um, I hope you, again, like I said, get some tidbits. Um, so stay safe out there. Mm -hmm. Bye guys. Thank you for listening to the Today's RDH Dental Hygiene Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.